book of Matthew, chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Matin, and Matin the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Diane and Doreen. It is always a terror for people who get asked to read scripture because they're afraid there will be words that will be pronounced that you don't know how to pronounce them. And I don't know two more courageous ladies who just read the most difficult passage in all of scripture. And yet they did it. So thank you ladies for being willing to jump in. Um, as you have uh, this past week uh, been moving through Matthew with us, some of you picked up copies of these scripture journals. There were some of you who, who wanted some and couldn't get some, so we ordered some more. There's some more out in the lobby if you want to use the, the journal. And what we're doing, we're inviting you to sort of read through this, this gospel with us as we move through the series. And this gives you an opportunity to... Uh, sort of sit with the Word of God. And someone who has been doing this for a couple of months said to me how uh, it had been a blessing, 
by simply asking um, or, or considering the time with the text as time with Jesus and simply writing to the Lord, uh, Lord Jesus, just as she's writing or as she's reading through scripture, simply looking at, well, Jesus, you did this, or Jesus, this is said about you. And, and I invite you, as you think about uh, the journal, uh, if it's, uh, you know, some people don't like journals, it doesn't work, and sitting with this is crazy, but I invite you to consider this as a time for you to sort of sit with the Lord and look at it that way. Maybe that will be helpful. Um, but there are more copies out there uh, on, the, on the, the table just outside the door for you to pick up and, and, and run with. And for others of you who journaling just is intimidating or useless or pointless or you can't see how it's helpful, um, if you're an auditory person, I would point you to the public reading of Scripture, which is um, the website is PRS. I.org, and you can listen to a dramatic reading of the entire Bible. So if you have a long commute in the morning, you could pop this on. Um, that's PRSI.org, right, Andy? Okay, so uh, public reading of scripture. So if, if journaling, it doesn't work for you, maybe listening to God's word does. Uh, we do have a 9 a.m. class that focuses on listening to scripture uh, every week that meets in the conference room. But that's another way to sort of get God's word into your mind and sit and contemplate and meditate on God's word. That's what we're doing. We're moving through this gospel of Matthew um, in order to move at a kind of slow pace. And so some of you uh, told me this week, like, I, I did what you said. I did those first 17 verses. And I'm like, okay, I'm ready to keep going. I would say, keep going. If you want to keep moving, you move at your own pace through, uh, through this journal. If you're using it, if it's helpful for you, just keep pressing on and keep seeking the Lord because that's what we're striving to do is encourage you to get into God's word and allow God's word to get into you and to begin to transform you and awaken uh, a living relationship between you and Jesus and to foster spiritual strength because we need to be strengthened in our faith. And that's the aim of all that we're doing is to strengthen uh, us in our faith and our walk with the Lord. So let me just pray for us before we begin. Father, we uh, do pray that by your spirit, you would grant strength to each of us according to your word and through your word. And Lord, I ask that uh, you would allow us to see goodness here. This is the gospel according to Matthew and gospel is good news. And so I, I ask you, would you let us hear what your word says and receive it as good news and Jesus, you often said, whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. And I pray by your spirit, you would grant each of us hearing ears for what we need to hear today. And Jesus, I, I wish I could completely disappear and you would come and stand in the flesh and speak to us. I don't know of anything that any of us need more than you. And I pray by your spirit that you would meet needs. I pray your living presence would be with us as we have sung to you and your word tells us that you inhabit the praises of your people. We trust that you are here in your spirit. You are with us. And I thank you for such a sweet promise because none of us deserve such a gift. And so Lord, let us be nourished by your word. Let us get strength, spiritual strength and encouragement for spending time together because we are obeying you. We are gathering together in your name 
This is all about you, Jesus. We need you. We want to know you more deeply. And I ask by your spirit, you would be at work in each and every heart, granting listening ears so that we would see you are alive. You have risen. You died for the sins of those who would trust in you. You rose again from the dead. You spent time with your disciples. You then ascended into heaven and you are seated at the right hand of your Father and by your Spirit, whom you have sent to be with us and in us, you're here among us this morning. And so, Lord Jesus, we would ask that your will would be done, completely unhindered by the enemy. In Christ Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. So you just heard a genealogy of Jesus um, read. And I, I wonder when you come to particular passages in Scripture, when the Word of God doesn't seem to speak to you, what do you do? You come to hard texts and you don't get anything out of it, what do you do? When you come to Scripture and you can't see the purpose for which it was written, what do you do? When you find in Scripture something that completely surprises you and appears to contradict something else in Scripture, what do you do? What's happening within you when you bump into texts like that? Those are the kinds of questions that come to my mind when I come to this particular passage of Scripture, these opening words of um, the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew. And last week, we were introduced to the man, Matthew. Uh, We got a little bit of a feel for who he is as we began our journey through this this gospel. We we realize he wrote this uh, early, mid to the the late first century, around late 50s or early 60s. Uh, This gospel was written, one of the first, and might be the first written. Uh, So very, very close to the time that Jesus ascended into heaven, uh, very fresh in the minds of the apostles. We learn Jesus is, I mean, uh, Matthew is one of the 12 apostles or the 12 disciples. He was an eyewitness to Jesus' ministry. He walked with him. He sat with him at table. Matthew hosted him at his house, we saw. Um, He's a tax collector, uh, hated by his people. And yet, as soon as he met Jesus, he invited everybody over for dinner. Um, He hosted a large gathering at his house, invited all of his tax collector friends, all of his sinner friends, and because he wanted to introduce them to Jesus. And we saw not only was a tax collector, he was a total convert because when Jesus passed by him as he was seated at his tax booth, Jesus called him to follow him and Matthew did it. He left everything, we are told, got up and followed Jesus and went with him on his way. So that's the Matthew that we met last week and now we begin looking at his words. And these opening words is, we could say, a kind of the the genesis of Jesus. If you, uh, we're going to, Uh, think about what what to call this particular passage. It's the genesis of Jesus, for these are actually the very first words that we see in the text of verse 1. Your translation or the translation I'm preaching from, the English Standard uh, Translation says, uh, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And so the, the genealogy of Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And in the Greek, this is biblos genesis, which is genesis effectively, or the, the beginning of Jesus. This is the genesis of Jesus. This is what uh, Matthew is writing about. He, he goes straight to the point, 
and presents Jesus and says, this is how he began. And he tells us here, uh, this is the beginning of Jesus, the genesis of Jesus. This takes our minds back to the very beginning of the Bible. The genesis of all things, the beginning of all things that were created is how the Bible even begins. So Matthew is, is using language that to his Jewish audience, and you remember, he's primarily focused on Jews. He's writing this gospel to convince Jews. He quotes Old Testament scripture like nothing else, but he wants Jews to understand Jesus is the Messiah. That's his point. And so he says the genesis of Jesus, and it, it, it takes you almost back to Genesis and makes you wonder, is Matthew saying that God is doing something different in Jesus, something new? Is, is a new creation, a new beginning unfolding through Jesus? And I think the answer is yes. That's exactly what he is doing. And he calls this the gospel, which is the good news. And, and, and yet, he chooses to begin with a genealogy. And I wonder how many of you, when you sat down, in fact, someone told me this, I sat down to read this particular passage of scripture. And I wonder if, if you read it this week, what was your response? Did you say, oh my word, a genealogy. Oh, how edified I shall be after reading this genealogy. Or was it more of a, oh my gosh, a long list of names? I'm going to skip it. That's probably what we all do, don't we? we? We come to passages like this and we get through it as quickly as possible. I, there's no, why is this even here? I don't understand. But I want to I ask you a question. How important is the introduction of any piece of literature? How much time goes into crafting an opening sentence that will capture the audience? We, 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 we probably have the first lines of lots of pieces of literature in your mind, right? It was the best of times. It was the... You know that, right? Or in a hole in a ground, there lived a hobbit. We know these things. Or what about, call me Ishmael. You know what that came from, right? There's, there's beginnings, the introductions to pieces of work that are massively significant. Or once there were four children whose name was Peter and Susan and Edmund and Lucy. Yes, C.S. Lewis. And yet, so we know the introductions to literature is significant. And yet we think Matthew starts with a genealogy? That's nuts. What's well, not nuts? And I, the question for us is, can we get our head around what Matthew is doing and see that this is actually good because Matthew thinks this is so important, he starts his, his, his own gospel with this genealogy of Jesus' life. This is incredibly important. And this response that we have in us today, which is, oh, good grief, would not have been the response of a first century Jew because of the expectancy that has been built in to the entire fabric of Jewish history of looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. And yet, where's that sense of expectancy in our lives? Do, do you ever, when you approach reading scripture or listening to scripture, do you sit down and say, oh, I just can't wait 
for you to say something to me, Jesus. I can't wait to get to your word. And I invite you, pray into that. If that's the state of your soul, then as you move into God's word, pray and ask, will you give me a hunger for your word? Because we have a, a couple of sentences by Jesus in this very gospel that says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for, for, the, for righteousness. There's blessings upon those who hunger and thirst for, for goodness. So I invite you to begin to pray into God's word before you even read. Let, let your heart begin in a place of prayer. Because this is good. And the question is, can we see where it's good? Now, I just, in verse one, so if you have your Bible, just keep it open. We'll, we'll just be here this morning. But this, this first verse, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Ma Matthew's pointing us to what he's doing and he's introducing a summary, right? Because David was not the immediate son of Abraham, and yet he's called the son of Abraham. Jesus was not the immediate son of David, and yet he is called the son of David. So Matthew is launching us into a summary, and he begins by saying the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now that term, Christ, sometimes it's, it's used so often, we think it's Jesus' last name. It's not Jesus' last name, it's actually a title which connotes an anointing. In the Old Testament, this word meant one who was anointed. It was used of kings, it was used of prophets in various instances where God particularly blessed or sometimes the anointing actually physically happened with oil. There was an outward sense of this anointing by God in order to demonstrate God's hand of favor to equip someone for a purpose. And so the Lord's anointed is the one who, whose abiding presence of the Holy Spirit rested on a person in order to do all that God had intended or called them to do. And so this notion began to develop throughout the course of the history of, of Israel such that when you, when you hear the anointed one, your mind automatically meant the one, the Messiah, the deliverer, the one who was long ago promised to come and establish the kingdom of God, deliver the people of God, and be that kind of good shepherd who would protect and provide for the people of God. And so that carries this notion, the Christ, Jesus is... Matthew is saying Jesus is the Christ. He's the one. That's good news. The one who was long ago promised has finally come. So this genealogy is good news because it points to Christ, the one whom God particularly chose and anointed to accomplish his will and fulfill the promises. So this notion of fulfillment is massive for Matthew. It runs through the entire book and he gives us two clues of primarily the dominant sort of hangers of what he's going to, to put this genealogy on, which is the son of David, the son of Abraham. Because there were two promises that were given to each of those men. God gave a promise to David that one of his descendants would sit on his throne. We find this in 2 Samuel 7. I'll just read a, a portion of verses 12 to 16. Let you see this. Uh, God, uh, David has come and he has said to God, I want to build a house for you. Meaning, I want to build a temple. Uh, I'm here. I'm settled in Jerusalem. Everything is, is peaceful. And the ark, your, your, the symbol of God's presence is in a, in a tent. I'd like to build a permanent house for you. 
And, and God says to him, nice thought, but you're not the guy. But he says to him, when your days are fulfilled, so in response to this notion that David wants to build a temple for the Lord, God says to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. My steadfast love will not depart from him. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever and your throne shall be established forever. So David says to God, I'd like to build you a house. And God essentially says, you cannot because you are a man of war. You're a man of blood. You're, you're too unholy. But in response to that, God says, I'll build you a house. Which is, I think, one of the sweetest things I have lately read. You want to build me a house? You can't. I, I, but I will build you a house. I will build you a place of rest. And so he says, in fact, your descendants, one of them, I will promise to live, to abide on the throne of Israel. He says forever. That's incredible. So all of Israel paid attention to that and remembered that promise because they said, well, Solomon established the kingdom and it flourished under, under his reign, but Solomon died. And he went off the rails at the end of his life. And so they kept looking forward to one who would keep God's people focused on him. One who would come and deliver and provide spiritual nourishment. And that's the son of David. A descendant yet to come. And Matthew is saying Jesus is him. Jesus is the son of David about whom God spoke and said he would reign forever. So this is a forever person is what Matthew is introducing us here. So that term, son of David, is good news because it points to that fulfillment that God promised David so long ago. He also says that, that Jesus is the son of Abraham. Why? Because God also gave Abraham a promise that wasn't immediately fulfilled in any of his descendants. And so that promise we find in Genesis 22, verses 16 to 18. It's God again speaking here. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because there's nobody higher. There's no higher authority than God. So he swears by himself. Because you have done this and, I, and you have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and surely multiply your offsprings, your son, your offspring as the stars of the heavens, as the sand on the seashore, and in your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So God says to Abraham, you've, you've given me your son, I'm going to give you a son. I'm going to give you a son, a son in whom all nations will be blessed. So God promises blessings for all of the families of the earth to Abraham. And then Matthew comes in and he says, he's the one. He is the, the fulfillment of that promise. And, and I want you to flip to the end of Matthew. Turn to the very last page of this gospel. This nation, so God promised Abraham, in you all nations will be blessed and then at the very conclusion of Matthew's gospel, we find these words on the mouth of Jesus. Jesus said to his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of 
what? All nations. Here's Jesus being the actual fulfillment of this ancient promise, both to Abraham and to David. And Matthew is saying, this is good news. You've got to know that Jesus is the fulfillment of both of those promises. But it's only good news if it's true, right? This, this is not good news if this is just made up. Fulfillment is just mere hope unless Jesus actually is the descendant of Abraham and David. So now Matthew sets out to prove and to demonstrate the genealogy of Jesus so that we will have confidence that he, Jesus, actually is the Messiah, the one who was long ago spoken to. And so we come to these genealogies and we stumble over them. We don't see the point. But do you see the point now? Matthew is pointing Jesus, the son of Abraham, fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham, son of David, God's promises to, Abra to David that one of his sons would endure forever. Now, this might not, again, you might not seem like good news to you, but I, I want to tell you a story of <clears throat> God using this particular passage in the lives of a tribe of a Papua New Guinea uh, tribesmen called the Binyamarian people. I shared this about a year and a half ago, but I want to share it again because it's so incredibly magnificent. In the 70s, there were two missionaries who went into this little group of people, the Binyamarian people in Papua New Guinea, because they were the least populous tribe on the island of, of New Guinea, and they wanted to go and share the gospel with them. So when they began translating the scripture into their language, well, they started with the book of Matthew because they, that, that, that was most important. But they're like me and you. Would you start with a genealogy? Right? It's pointless. So they skipped it and started at verse 18, which is where we start our Christmas story. So they translated the entire book of Matthew, except the first 17 verses, and then it took them a year to do this, and they had a language helper, and this guy was helping them out, uh, translating and, and, and creating uh, all of the Gospel of Matthew. They finally got it finished, <clears throat> and at the very end, okay, the only thing that's left now is these first 17 verses, these first, this genealogy, which is completely unimportant. So they did that last. So the missionaries were working with this language helper. They worked their way through these first, these first 17 verses and they noticed that this language helper was incredibly engaged throughout the course of the entire translation of these verses. He, was, he, he didn't waste any time talking. He was very diligent. Uh, he didn't ask any questions. He didn't expound anything. He just worked his way all the way through. When they finished translating these 17 verses, he said to them, there's going to be a meeting tonight at the chief's house and you need to come and bring what we just translated. And he ran out the door. This was highly unusual and the missionaries thought, what is he up to? But okay, we'll, we'll go. So they went that night to the chief's house and the two missionaries, when they walked in, <clears throat> said actually the place was packed, had never seen the chief's house so full. And so as they came in, they were slightly intimidated, like what is actually going on? And so the language helper said, you have to read what we translated today. So the missionary picked up his Bible and he the book of the genealogy of Jesus the Christ, the son of David, and he started reading. As he was reading, and he's in the center of the house, 
All of the tribesmen began moving closer and closer and closer to him and listening more intently. And the longer he read, the wider their eyes got until finally they were actually pressing in on him and touching him so close. He was wondering, are they offended by what I'm reading or what is happening? He finally got to the end <clears throat> and read the last verse. And he looked up at all of these eyes at him, expecting anger on their faces, given their, their impression and closeness. And he said there was this look of incredulity. And one of the men said, why didn't you tell us this before? And the missionary didn't quite know what to say. Another man said, no one bothers to write down the ancestors of spirit beings. Only real people record their genealogy. And another man said in the back, then this Jesus must be a real man and not just some white man's magic. And then the chief said, then Jesus is true. And the missionaries, what they have taught us is accurate. And they believed the gospel of Jesus because of this genealogy. Because who takes the time to make up stuff for fake people? Nobody. And so they believed Jesus was real based upon these genealogies. So question for you. This might seem completely irrelevant for us, but it's not. It actually is here for our edification and for your confidence in the truthfulness of Scripture. And sometimes when we come across passage of scripture that might not be immediately relevant to us it's actually very helpful for someone else and so we ought to pay attention so we see <clears throat> this pattern that Matthew begins by sharing who the fathers were Abraham look at verse 2 Abraham was the father of Isaac Isaac the father of Jacob we see this pattern worked out through this entire genealogy so this is this is Matthew's flow of thought but I, I want you to notice something. He does something in his genealogy that nobody else in scripture does that I'm aware of in a genealogy and that is introduce mothers. So when you get to verse three, Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, they were twins by Tamar. He introduces the mother, Tamar. And then surprisingly, he goes on and mentions four more women in the context of this genealogy. So Tamar, we have Ruth, and Rahab, we have the uh, Bathsheba is mentioned. And then finally, Mary is mentioned. Uh, all three of them are Gentiles. And so Matthew is saying God has incorporated Gentiles into the very lineage of the Messiah. Uh, they were all uh, got pregnant by very unusual circumstances. And in and, and each of these instances, no other genealogy includes women in Jewish history. And so as one commentator said, Matthew is very un-Jewish here in what he is doing. But he is obviously doing something, right? Tamar was the daughter-in-law of Judah who tricked him into sleeping with her after Judah failed to keep a promise to provide her with a husband with one of his sons. And then two twins were born, and Perez is the line through which Jesus has come. Rahab, you'll remember, was a Canaanite prostitute who helped the spies of Israel enter the promised land and take the city of Jericho. She put her faith in the God of Israel and gave up her profession and became the grand, a great-grandmother of David. Ruth also was a Moabitess, a woman who 
uh, it was prohibited to intermarry with Israel. She also left her hometown, put her faith in the God of Israel, and came and be, uh, became the grandmother of Jesus, uh, of David, I'm sorry. And so then the right wife of Uriah. Are you confused yet with all of these names? What's Matthew doing is the real question. And I think there's several things that he could be doing. He could be laying the groundwork for the inclusion of Gentiles into God's redemptive plan because most Jews did not think that Gentiles were included. And yet Matthew here points out there are at least three mothers who are included in Jesus's genealogy who are Gentiles because Matthew will have a focus for the Gentiles throughout the course of his gospel. Even though it is a very Jewish gospel, his point is Gentiles are included in God's providential plan of redemption. He could also be, as an outcast and a tax collector, pointing out that God sees those who are overlooked. The eyes of the Lord are on those whose hearts are fully towards him, no matter from where they come. And so he could be pointing this out. He could also be preparing us for the unusual circumstances of birth that will surround Jesus himself and Mary because of all of these irregularities with all of these women that he is pointing. Or maybe he's doing all three. I'm not quite sure. He's probably doing all of them. So Matthew then moves on and he structures his genealogy in three sections of 14. From Abraham to David, or 14 generations, he says. From David to the deportation into exile, or 14 generations. And then from the deportation to Jesus, or 14 generations. And Matthew, as I pointed out at the beginning, he's using a summary. As we followed through all of the, the genealogical records, if you go back and compare, Matthew's getting this from 1 uh, Chronicles 3, uh, 1 through 3, where the genealogical record is included. Also from the book of Ruth, which includes a genealogical record. So he's going back in the first two sections. It's easy to see what he's done. And he has intentionally left out some names in order to arrive at 14. And when you get to the third section, we also see that he has intentionally left out some names of at least three kings and probably includes Mary as the 14th name in that third section. And the question then often has been, well, why on earth would Matthew skip some names? Is he being deceptive or is he just a victim of shoddy research? For me, as I think about this, this gospel was uh, one of the earliest accepted and universally accepted across the early church. It was never doubted. All of the church fathers affirmed this as true and trustworthy. And so I ask the question, if they didn't have a problem and they had easier access to the genealogical records than we do, why would we have a problem? If this was false, and what Matthew is doing is in any way not fully truthful, they would certainly have exposed the error. And yet none of the early church did. In fact, just the opposite. They affirmed this, this gospel and used it to teach new Christians about the, the solid grounding of their faith. So probably what Matthew is doing in leaving out some names is using a, a rabbinic tool called gematria, which uses numbers to shape theological truths for the sake of understanding and the ease of memorization. 
And so he has, he has chosen 14 names that are actually in the line. And you can go back and look at them yourself if you want to do the homework. The first and second sections, you can go and look in your Bible and find the names that he pulls. They are truly the descendants of Abraham. And then the third section, which is closest to Jesus, we don't have currently any access to that genealogical data. But we do have first century Jewish historians who write that during the first century, such data did exist and were able to go and get genealogical records that we don't have access to. So if I'm you and I'm reading the scripture, you compare this to Luke, you will notice major differences because Luke includes a genealogy too. And some people have said this genealogy is irreconcilable with Luke's genealogy. They can't be doing, they can't have the same records. It's, it's, it's uh, uh, completely irreconcilable. And yet when you look at what Matthew is doing, he started with Abraham and he has worked his way down through David and every subsequent heir to the throne from David to Jesus. Those who would have had the right to rule is important to Matthew because of the promise to David that he's trying to tell us has been fulfilled in Christ. But yet when you look at Luke's genealogy, what Luke is concerned is about biological descent, not royal descent. And so he traces Jesus's genealogy back through Nathan, who is actually Solomon's brother. So if you understand Matthew, Luke knew Matthew had already written this. He's, he's not refuting him. He's doing something exactly different to communicate biological connection to Jesus, I mean, to David and to Abraham. So each of the gospel authors have different purposes. So there's not a confusion or a contradiction. It's just different purposes. So don't let your faith stumble over these things. There's an answer, even if sometimes we find it very difficult to see. Now, one final observation that I want you to see is Matthew is abundantly clear. Joseph is not the father of Jesus. So look at verse 16 with me. In verse 16, we say, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Now he breaks his formula. He does not say that Jacob, the father of Joseph, the father of Jesus. He doesn't say that. He says, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. Matthew clearly understands that Joseph is not the biological father of Jesus. And he is now, in subsequent verses from 18 on, going to explain how that could be. And so my question to you, <clears throat> who is Jesus? Do you believe that he truly is a descendant both of King David, but also of Abraham, and that he is the fulfillment of those promises. Do you believe Jesus really is the Christ? The one who long ago was promised, who's actually come. He has fulfilled that promise that blessing to all nations would be granted to a descendant of Abraham. And then Jesus says, go tell all nations what I have, have told you. Teach them to obey everything that I have said. And then also that, that Jesus is the one to sit and carry the royal reign of David. And where is he right now? Jesus, bodily right now. Where is he? He is seated at the right hand of the Father on a throne. 
carrying on the, the rule and the rightful reign of Jesus at, that began with David. So do you believe that he is the son of, of Abraham, the son of David, and the Christ? So as we close, what do you do when you come to texts don't, that don't seem to speak to you? I say, read them again. Pray for understanding and, and, and persist in, in um, seeking the Lord for an answer. So someone told me just before the service, you know, I read this genealogy every day and I got nothing. Nothing until yesterday. And then the Lord showed me something. I, that's, that's exactly what we ought to do because all scripture is good for us including genealogies, and persist. When you're, when you're seeking God's word, it's not like there's going to be angels shouting every day. But God will give you what you need to get through the day. And, and I commend to you to keep reading. How should we think about scripture that we can't see the purposes of? Um, we, we study. Study to show yourself approved. Keep digging into God's word and going deep and he will give you the answer that you need. And what should we think about scripture that appears to contradict itself? I would say submit humbly to the authority of scripture and ask the Lord to help you see um, where there, there might be an apparent contradiction. I don't believe God's word ever contradicts itself because God is a God who tells the truth. So we may think there's a contradiction, but I think with further study, we will all eventually one day see that God's word is true and completely trustworthy. So I invite you, don't stumble over difficult texts. In faith, keep seeking answers, and the Lord will give you what you need. He will reveal himself to you through his word. Let's pray together. Father, I, I once again ask that each one of us in this room would be able to wholeheartedly say without any doubt that Jesus is Lord. And Jesus, uh, we, some of us do need help in understanding. Some of us have doubts and you are patient with doubters. You, you answer the request of doubters just as Thomas demanded evidence and said he wouldn't believe unless he could see you you were gracious to him and gave him exactly what he needed to see even with Gideon Lord you were patient with him as he needed evidence to to believe and he kept seeking you for the evidence that he needed and you eventually gave him exactly what he needed and Lord I pray that you would do that for every person in this room in such a way that our faith would stand with firmness and conviction that Jesus, you are the Christ, you are the son of Abraham, you are the son of David, and you are the fulfillment of all of those promises. He is your son. And God, I ask, let each one of us in this room be so convinced that you are the God of Abraham, you are the God of David, you are the God of Jesus, and you are our God to this very day. May we serve you with glad and whole hearts. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.